Alright folks, I'm going to read a <clears throat> article today. The Horse in Ancient Chinese History, Symbolism and Myth. The Horse in Ancient China by Louis Sacunia. <clears throat> Alright, The Great Wall, A Barrier Against the Horse. The horse has always played an important role in the traditions and history of mankind and no less so in the case of China. With the exception of the dragon, which is a mythical animal, the horse is the most recurrent animal in the Chinese world, having been present from the dawn of Chinese culture both on a mythical and symbolic level. It symbolizes pure male strength, yang, and at first was regarded as being even more potent than the dragon. Later, the horse came to be confused with the dragon and was finally substituted by the dragon as China's complex symbology emerged. On a popular level, it is still a symbol of speed, perseverance, imagination, and youthful energy. A horse at the peak of its physical and intellectual development is described as a thousand-league colt. It corresponds to the element fire and to the sun. It is one of the seven treasures. It is one of the seven treasures of Buddhism and comes seventh in the twelve earthly branches. It is one of the twelve symbols of the Chinese zodiac. The history of the horse in China dates back over many centuries. Several sources confirm that horses were recognized in the time of the three august sovereigns and that Qin Shi Huangti also invented carts and ordered that oxen and horses be captured for domestication. The three august sovereigns. I gotta look that up. That sounds interesting. <laughs> the three sovereigns, also sometimes called the three August Ones, are named in Sima Kian's records of the Korean historian. According to Sima, they are the heavenly sovereign, or Fushi, the earthly sovereign. Okay, so they're basically god kings or demigods who use their abilities to. What? Okay. It is worth noting that in this case, the horse appears in conjunction in conjunction with the ox. All right, let me go back real quick. Three August sovereigns. Trinity, right there. Then on top of this, it says, It is worth noting that in this case, the horse appears in conjunction with the ox. Ox is a bull. The Bible, the in, in the Bible, the god Yahweh, I think, is a bull. For centuries, the god of horses was worshipped by Chinese and barbarians alike. You hear this shit? For centuries, the god of horses... Who the fuck is the god of horses? Was worshipped by the Chinese and barbarians. 
his image that of an ogre with multiple arms bearing weapons and with a tiny horse at his feet was to be found on lucky papers stuck in temples and stables to ward off illness and evil spirits. Yo, have you ever heard of this shit? The horse, the god of horses, his image that of an ogre with multiple arms bearing weapons and with a tiny horse at his feet. What? To his left, also sitting above the trough which served as an altar, there was the god of the oxen. Look at this shit, man. The Chinese dedicated themselves for centuries to improving the horse, both in terms of breed and numbers. In the reign of Emperor Wu Ti, at a point, okay, 141 to 8 to 87 BC, at a point when the Chinese had already attained a great deal of expertise in their cavalry, an expedition was led against the Xiong Nu barbarians. The Chinese managed to seize their capital and capture all the best horses which were stabled there. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Once they, had, once they had acquired this large group of horses, they were able to crossbreed them with higher quality horses from western kingdoms to the satisfaction of emperor and aristocrat alike. The exquisite the exquisite Eastern Han bronze statue of the flying horse pays homage to this breed. Light-footed, well-proportioned, capable of soaring like the wind, these horses were named Tian Ma, Celestial horse, Horses. Tian Ma, Celestial Horses. I think Jesus was one of these celestial horses. Anyways. <clears throat> Historically, the horse had such a profound influence on the Middle Kingdom that it might be suggested that it caused the creation of the greatest monument on earth, the Great Wall. If we consider how much protection the Great Wall gave to the 18 provinces of ancient China, which lay to the south of it, we can understand just how great was the threat from the steppes to the north. The Great Wall was erected against the apocalyptic vision of the barbarian warriors on horseback who came from the north. Let me read that again. The Great Wall was erected against the apocalyptic vision of the barbarian warriors on horseback who came forth from the north. Revelation we might even go so far as to say that the Great Wall was built against the horse since the country lived under the constant threat of invasion. The whole system of the Chinese defense mechanism was always vulnerable to attacks by these nomadic barbarians who were used to who were used to the harsh conditions of the steppes. Moreover, they were excellent horsemen and archers. On their agile ponies, they could move in swiftly and make their attacks, confident in, in the knowledge that they would then be able to make off quickly to unknown destinations. Classical Chinese defense, con classical Chinese defense consisted of units 
laid out in a square in walled cities or towns which were classified into different orders, but this was an extremely vulnerable system. Another dis disadvantage of Chinese defense was the fact that they used light chariots in warfare. Images of these have been transmitted to us on Bronze Age etchings. The form of the chariot reflected the religious sim symbolism inherent to the square, that is the earth, as shown in the square box and the circle, which is the sun, the rounded cover. Huh, so earth is square and the sun is the circle. Interesting. So then the pyramid, the mounds, and volcanoes would be the triangle. Huh, interesting. And all is being led by the symbol of fire, the horse. There you go. Pyramid. Fire mound. It's a fucking volcano. The horse. The horse is the symbol of fire. Revelation. It's 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 horses and volcanoes. I mean, we all we all saw what happened in Tonga. <laughs> she coming, man. However, the disadvantage to the Chinese was that, in fact, the barbarian cavalry was so mobile on horseback that these Chinese chariots were unable to keep up with them. As a result, the horse and light cavalry were to become an increasingly important strategic asset. The attitude of the Chinese toward these barbarian tribes is that of a feeling of superiority. It is true that they lacked a knowledge of Chinese ritual, but for all that the Chinese were more cultured, they were still at a disadvantage when it came to protecting themselves. The strength of the barbarians lies in their rudimentary laws and institutions. Their homes, food, and clothing have for, have for so long been so crude and barbaric that they have retained a violent, savage character with the same customs, giving them a great advantage. This situation was to present China with a dilemma for centuries. Should China remain civilized and perish, or should it revert to a barbarian state and survive? My god, that is fucking crazy. They were thinking about all this shit back then. Remain civilized and perish, or should it revert to a barbarian state and survive? I feel like a lot of the world is going through this stage right now. <laughs> Always reluctant to relinquish any of its cultural advances, China was to reach a gradual compromise. After so many attempts by the barbarians to penetrate the country, China allowed part of itself, the army, to become barbaric. Well, yeah, you have to defend yourself. That's where I think Tibet fucked up. Anyways, that's a different story. Mm. Okay, cavalry. When the Jesuit priest J.B. Duhald. See, this is another thing about these Jesuits, man. I think these fuckers are the ones behind 
the master plan if there's one <laughs> i think these are the fuckers behind these are the these are the geniuses man all who work for the pope anyways when the jesuit priest jb duhald and these fuckers have been around for a while like as anyways described the chinese empire many centuries later he was to make little mention of the noble animal which had been a constant and decisive factor in the long history of the middle kingdom isn't that interesting china is called the middle kingdom and in the lord of the rings middle earth horses hmm in his description the empire de la chin it de la Tartarie Chinois. He states that in Sichuan province there are horses which are highly sought after for being small, extremely beautiful, and lively, and that in Yunnan there are excellent horses, mostly for riding to war, which are solid and vigorous. In the land of the Mongols, horses and wild horses are even more abundant to the west. Duhald goes on to state that there are around 770,000 troops stationed along the Great Wall in towns and walled sections. The emperor also maintained around 565,000 horses. God damn! There are around 770,000 troops stationed along the Great Wall. The emperor also maintained around 565,000 horses for cavalry troops and to be used for the couriers who carried his orders and those of the tribunals to the provinces. God damn. How, how many the emperor maintained around 565,000 horses? There's some fucking cities that don't even have that many people, man. Marco Polo also writes that Genghis Khan organized his army into divisions, each one containing 10,000 men. This is what I'm saying. When Jesus talks about his legions and all this shit, they say it was Rome, but I don't know, man. Ah, anyways. He also developed a messenger system along the most important routes, whereby horses could be changed every hundred miles at staging posts guarded by troops. In his account, he states that there were more than 10,000 staging posts with over 300,000 horses. I'm just saying from the perspective of scale, even nowadays, if you look at the scale on which China fucking works versus anyone else, man. Like, I mean, we all we all saw how. I'm not gonna get into politics, but I'm just talking about scale here and managing this, like, managing large numbers of of whether horses or troops or whatever. It's like. These guys have been doing this shit for a while, man. Okay. 
In his account, he states that there were more than 10,000 staging posts with over 300,000 horses. From the end of the Qin Dynasty until the end of the Western Han Dynasty, the horse had already begun to take on a more important role in the history of China. It was to maintain this importance until the Golden Age of the Tang Dynasty. The spectacular archaeological discoveries which have been made in the People's Republic of China over the last few decades have provided new material for the experts to interpret the history of this great nation. In 1974, the tomb of the first emperor was discovered at Mount Li, revealing that revealing what was probably one of the greatest collections of historical material ever to be found from that period. The army of 7,000 life-sized statues with their emperor intended to guarantee his own immortality in history and heaven was buried along with his own body so that according to the ancient Chinese belief, they could continue to serve him in the afterlife. See, this, this theme is universal, I feel like. We also know from these archaeological finds that live horses attached to chariots were thrown into pits as part of human and animal ritual sacrifices which took place following the death of an emperor. Yeah, this is done all over the world. Like, animal sacrifice, horse sacrifice has been done, is still continuing to be done all over the world. The magnificent army discovered at Mount Lee is organized in its original formation. From the extensive res research which has been carried out, there seems to be evidence that some of the battle chariots have had reverted to their original use as observation posts and for transporting commanders from one part of the field to another. The horses unearthed during work at at the site are divided into two easily distinguished groups. Those used for cavalry have their tails hanging loose, while those used for pulling chariots have their tails tied up or even cut off. Hmm. What, is more, what is most appealing, however, is the expression of their eyes reflecting an intensive level of training and discipline. Theirs is the Theirs is a controlled energy, which could also be unleashed against the enemy whenever necessary. The success of the Qin army in uniting feudal, feudal kingdoms in the reign of the first emperor was largely due to the presence of cavalry regiments. The Qin dynasty saw the introduction of not only a more maneuverable chariot, but also a more mobile light cavalry. Indeed, this cavalry, cavalry was, to pro, was to prove itself a decisive force in the battles at the end of the 3rd century. We must not forget, however, that cavalry had already been employed in the Zhu dynasty. Other references confirming the observation that the light cavalry was quicker and more maneuverable than chariots were to appear in the 4th century BC. This was the case in the northern kingdoms where cavalry had been adopted after the example of the barbarians along with the clothing used to dress horsemen, a practical suit of tunic and trousers. Classical chariots 
An important feature of battles in those times were constructed out of wood with two wheels measuring around 1.8 meters in diameter. Once they were taken out of the planes, however, they were awkward to maneuver. The light war chariot was highly, resi was highly resistant to attack. It resembled closely the chariots made in Western Asia during the Bronze Age and was formed of a square box pulled by two horses on a flexible yoke. Get yoked, horsey. The seemingly distant origins of this lighter chariot are, are not too surprising when we consider that the horse as a domestic animal began to appear appear in Syria and Anatolia around the was that, 17th century BC XV 117th this particular kind of chariot had in fact already been in use in China during the Shang dynasty If we examine the development of political China, we can see that it is during periods of peacetime or when a dynasty is being established, in other words, when power is being consolidated, that cavalry is of most importance. This can be seen up until the foundation of the last era of Chinese imperial rule, as well as during periods of expansion or conquest of neighboring <coughs> regions. These situations have been repeated over the course of Chinese history. Alright, getting to the good shit. Celestial horses and flying horses. However, the importance of cavalry troops really reached its peak in the period of the Western Han. As a result, greater efforts were made to capture them, and they reached prices which were to be unequaled throughout the history of China. Under the influence of one of his advisors, Emperor Wenti decreed that by handing over a chariot and horse, a family could be exempted from military service. Wow. From the outset of the Han Dynasty, there had been tremendous pressure on China's western borders from the powerful barbarian tribes which lurked on the other side of the Great Wall. Isn't that interesting? From this side, China is calling the fucking barbar- <laughs> The- Oh, man. And that's why they built the Great Wall, to keep the, bar put bar the barbarians out, man. <sighs> the Xiongnu were familiar neither with writing or with the concept of property. Their battle tactics were unfamiliar to the Chinese, for whom retreat during an offensive was unthinkable. The barbarians, however, used this as a simple method for avoiding excessive losses and creating confusion among the enemy troops. Terracotta horse dressed for cavalry from the first emperor's tomb at Mount Li, Bronze horses in a set of four to be harnessed to the carriage of one of the emperor's favorite concubines from the first emperor's tomb at Mount Li. 
From the beginning of the Han Dynasty, there are references to crossbreeding Bactrian and Arab horses, a fact that which can be confirmed by the greater corpulence and different coloring of horses in the statues dating from that period. Prior to the discoveries made at Mount Li, archaeological teams had already discovered another army and a tomb in the ancient Han capital Xianyang, Shenxi province, dating from the Western Han period. More than two and a half thousand statues made of painted terracotta were arranged in perfect battle formation. There is abundant proof in this collection of the presence of a strong cavalry force covering the infantry and providing a link between different bodies of soldiers. Alright, um... More than two and a half thousand statues made of painted terracotta were arranged in perfect battle formation. More than two and a half, two and a half thousand statues, goddamn. There is abundant proof in this collection of the presence of a strong cavalry force covering the infantry and providing a link between different bodies of soldiers. In addition to this, there are four companies of cavalry reserves who would have been used for varied purposes including surprise charges and rapid surrounding of enemy troops. <clears throat> this strategy was the basis for the Han victories over the nomad warriors and later the Xiongnu tribes. According to the archaeologists, the model army seems to have been a replica of the army which was led by Zhu Yufu against invading armies during the reign of the fourth Han Emperor. This emperor was noted not only for his generous stocking of the imperial stud farms so that 500,000 horses were available for the sole use of the army, but also for the cunning strategies adopted by his general. The latter decided that it was more important to strengthen the force of the light cavalry and to coordinate the movements of the entire army through them. For this reason, Emperor Wu, the fifth emperor to reign during the Han Dynasty, made the move to go on the offensive rather than just use his forces to defend the country. The barbarians had made repeated attempts to penetrate China from the northern borders from the 2nd century BC, and although there had been moves to reach a settlement through the marriage of a Chinese princess to the head of the Xiongnu, this did little to appease them. In 149 BC, the barbarians had attacked Shanxi and raised the imperial stud farms, and in the following year, they had gone as far as where Peking, Peking is now situated. Bronze war chariot with charioteer, charioteer dating from the Eastern Han Dynasty, part of a small army discovered in 1969 in Leitai, Gansu province. The increase in the use of chariots and particularly light cavalry in warfare dated from the Western Han Dynasty. 
Emperor Wen's desire to extinguish the threat from the Xiongnu and gain access to better quality horses was to lead to the famous mission made by Chang Qian, who set out in search of the Yue Qi, sworn enemies of the Xiongnu. However, he was captured by the nomads and held prisoner for 10 years, after which time he managed to escape and arrive at Fergana. Here, he was provided with guides who led him to Trans Transoxiana. Yeah, wasn't, wasn't that Alexander's o Oxana? Oh, that was Oxana. Who led him to Transoxiana, and from there he traveled to Bactriana until he reached the south of Amu Darya, where he found the Yuechi who had adopted a settled life and were known to the Greeks by the name of Indo Scythians. Scythians. However, you want to say it. <laughs> It seems Chang Qian fell once more into the hands of the Xiongnu on his return to China and only managed to return to his homeland 20 years after having left it. Sorry, it shouldn't be Chang it shouldn't be Chang Qian, it should be Chang Qian. It's, it's pronounced Chang, not Chang. So it seems Chang Qian fell once more into the hand. Okay, records of his travels leave us with descriptions of a variety of kingdoms and cultures. Fergana was an agrarian culture, rich in rice and with horses who were rep reputed to sweat blood. Luke twenty-two forty-four. Fergana, reputed to have horses who sweat blood. Luke twenty-two forty-four. He had encountered a fermented drink made from a fruit as yet unknown in China, the grape. What? So China had silk, but they didn't have no wine or the grape? What? Okay, the inhabitants of Transoxiana were nomads, famed for their skills with the bow and arrow. Bactriana had good countryside and cities similar to Fergana, but most importantly, Chang Qian was able to bring back magnificent horses. Chang Qian's journey was the first contact which had been made with the people on the far side of the barbarian belt fencing in northern China. For the first time they were exposed to Central Asian cultures which in turn had been exposed to Grecian civilization. In fact, Alexander the Great had gone as far as eastern Persia and there had no doubt been some cross-breeding at that point. Look at this map. I'll put the link for all this shit. It's like, yeah man, it's fucking from all the way from fucking Israel all the way to China, Taiwan. It was all connected, man. <sighs> Stupid, man. Halberdier and horse made of bronze dating from the Eastern Han Dynasty. This is an interesting piece as it shows a weapon which was widely used in early cavalry warfare, but which fell into disuse as light cavalry became more widespread. Yeah, this is a fucking knight and his fucking... 
what do you call that? The the thing they would point at each other and ram into while riding the horse. The I forget what it's called, but that's basically what it is. All right. Um, the rider inclines forward with his lance. Okay, lance. There you go. <laughs> As the horse's head is drawn back, giving the impression that together they're about to charge into battle against an imaginary enemy. Little by little, products from trading with other countries began to infiltrate into China. Rugs, precious stones, the donkey, which was introduced by the Zhongnu, the grape and animals which had been hitherto unknown, such as certain breeds of horses. Thus we can say that Chang Qian's journey past the frontiers of the Middle Kingdom was the first step in linking China to the famous Silk Route. In fact, it might be more appropriate to describe this route as the Horse Route since it was really to acquire horses that the Chinese court bartered the Zhongnu with silks and iron objects. Consequently, it is hardly a coincidence that the statues unearthed by archaeologists dating from this period often portray horses and their riders. This is a reflection of the rise of the light cavalry in military strategies. The coloring of these horses reflects a purer breed of animal, surely the outcome of successive crossbreeding in the imperial stud farms. No longer do we find the squat breed of horse of the kind found in the imperial tomb at Mount Lee. The newer breed of horse was more powerful and also more graceful. They were certainly swifter and well deserved their nickname of flying horses, examples of which have been found in western Han dynasty tombs in Kansu province. Culture in the Shadow of Peace War strategies during the Eastern Han Dynasty 25 to 220 AD and over the next four centuries leading up to the Tang Dynasty focused on perfecting the breeding of horses and, in, and improving the cavalry. During this period, the capital was located in Luoyang from the reign of Chang Chie. China began to stir from her isolationist torpor and to diversify her alliances in order to neutralize threats from neighboring kingdoms. There was also increasing interest in acquiring stronger trade links and access to basic goods such as the horse. I'm telling you man, horses are going to make a comeback because of global warming. <laughs> Ancient China was beginning to look more and more to the West. China had long been steeped in tradition and was highly conscious of her own cultural superior okay. <laughs> superiority being reinforced by intellectuals such as poets and artists who left a wealth of works in their wake. China was feeling an, ev an ever greater culture cultural pressure for peace or for war, an opportunity for her to show her superior power. There was no shortage of human fodder for the armies, and China was soon to close in on those neighbors she knew of, 
The first census taken during the reign of the first emperor set the population at over 57 million, a larger number than was present throughout the Roman Empire at the peak of its power. Political unity and horses were the most valuable assets at this stage. The dilemma centered around whether to turn wild and survive or to remain civilized and perish. The Latin phrase, si vis passem para bellum, if you wish for peace, prepare for war, finally took center stage. The early years of the Tang dynasty are sufficient proof of this. Cultural life was to flourish under the cover of preparation for war. Hmm. Hmm. A lot of this sounds very familiar right now. <laughs> All right. Contacts with the Western kingdoms of Fergana, Transoxiana, Bactriana, and then with Persia and the Arabs, and the increased contacts with Central Asia and to the south, Tibet were directly eight to the south Tibet okay yeah Tibet is okay were directly reflected in improvements to the Chinese horse through crossbreeding that's interesting that they were so crazy about horses back then I mean, even till now, if you look up the Akalteke horses, Chinese people are the number one buyers, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, they love those horses. Anyways, from 558 to 578, towards the end of the northern and southern dynasties, China's fame also attracted several embassies from Persia and Central Asia to Chang'an. To Chang'an, okay. In the first five years of the Tang Dynasty, efforts were made to eliminate all enemy forces including the Tangut, and especially the new threat posed by the Turkish invaders. After various incursions on the western borders of the country, the Turks finally reached out towards Chang'an, but they were beaten back as far as Mongolia. Damn. By the year 640, the Tang had gained control of the kingdom of Kaochang, famed for its excellent breeds of horses. There you go. Horses. These fuckers are crazy about horses. The law of supply and demand meant that during that period, it was possible to buy a horse for 40 pieces of silk. 40 pieces of silver. 40 pieces of silk. The times when horses could be bought for a hundred pieces of gold seem, seemed long since gone. There are many conflict, conflicting references to the number of horses as the only reliable source consists of accounts of battles and military clashes. There is mention of the fact that the acquisition of 5,000 horses resulted in 20,000 horses being bred and that Emperor Cheng Xian had around 40,000 chargers, most of which had come from Central Asia. In 725, 
where the tag when the Tang Dynasty was at its peak, numbers indicate that there were around four hundred and twenty thousand horses available. God damn. This quantity had been guaranteed by the fact that a decree in seven oh five had implied the recovery of pasture land for imperial use. The good years were not to last long, however, as the peace with China was enjoying eventually as the peace which China was enjoying eventually led to decline in the state. Having suffered from the prolonged effects of constant warring between feudal states and kingdoms, all seeking power through the control of the country, and beginning to feel that having quelled the threats from bordering regions, China's creativity was to be swamped by decadence. This beautifully defined head reflects the favored position enjoyed by horses during the Tang Dynasty. As a mark of high class, we can see in this example the care taken in the richly decorated harness and delicately groomed mane. For, ce for centuries, China's defense had depended on a complex system of interconnected strategic positions, most obviously in the region of the Great Wall. The Imperial Guard were the central core of the army, supported by the regiments billeted in fortified cities and the units posted to the Great Wall, units communicated by means of a system of lights and smoke signals. Lord of the Rings! There were also special troops responsible for protecting pastures and the herds of horses. Soldier farmers received land for growing crops and for purposes of defense, while the canal soldiers were responsible for protecting the imperial waterways. During the Han and Qin dynasties, there, were, there was conscription and men between the ages of 23 and 30 were required to serve one year in the Imperial Guard and a further year in their home regions. Kind of like Korea. The whole system was gradually dismantled and a professional army established. Emperor Suan Sung ascended the throne in 712 and with a view to making the army more efficient decreed in 723 that there should be a permanent imperial guard. Sounds like the Vatican. In order to obtain 120,000 men to serve in this guard, it was necessary to abolish many taxes and certain kinds of punishments. The hard... Look at this shit. The hard-won peace gained by defeating the Eastern Turks in 630, the Western Turks in 657, the Japanese not Japanese, Japanese, in 663, and check this out, Korea, in 666 to 668, boosted the confidence of the, of the empire to such an extent that in 737, the emperor was led to soften the regime for recruiting soldiers. Quotes, as there is no reason to worry in the empire, it is worth giving some leeway to the men. As from now, 
there will be troops composed only of permanent soldiers responsible for guaranteeing the safety of this country. South Korea The fact that military service was no longer compulsory meant that in 745, Minister Leo Liu Lei, Lei Liu Fu drew up a decree which meant that conscription would virtually be a thing of the past. There was no longer any need for the border troops to be out in full force. Right, try saying that over here. Okay, silver traveler's flask plated with gold dating from the Tang, Tang Dynasty discovered in Xi'an. The figure in relief is a dancing horse from Emperor Zhangzong's famous school. I mean, look at this shit, and you think it's straight out of fucking Lord of the Rings, man. Without the Tang having to pay any particular attention to it, the old dilemma, dilemma reappeared. Danger does not always lurk on the outside of the empire. Alright, the dancing horses. Up to this point, the generations of new breeds of horses had been destined for military use in the cavalry regiments, for pulling carriages, for transportation, mail, and other forms of communication. The refinements of the Tang era were also to be reflected in the horse and the ways in which it was used. The horse in the Tang dynasty was a highly bred animal which scarcely resembled the ponies of the reign of the first emperor. This development can be proved through archaeological finds dating from the western Han to the Tang dynasties. For example, the statues of horses found in the first emperor's tomb at Mount Li are quite short, measuring around 1.7 meters high and 2 meters long thus reflecting their close relation to the ponies brought by the nomads from the northwest and the Mongolian steppes. These statues seem to correspond to the depiction of horses found on prints, drawings, paintings, and other statues dating from the same period. As we can see, at this time there was a marked difference between the height in relation to the length of the horse. After this stage... After this stage, the proportions of the horse gradually changed until the height equaled the length of the body, resembling the horses which appear in the paintings and bronze and clay statues produced by Tang artists. Okay, a variety of factors, however, may have affected the way in which the horse was portrayed, meaning that its representation would diverge somewhat from reality. Chinese painting and calligraphy depend, developed in such a way as to emphasize ideas rather than form. Huh, that's very in, that's a very interesting uh, observation right there. Pervading the entire work of art, there is, as a general rule, an impression of qi, the essential spirit achieved when the artist is completely in harmony with his subject. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. It's basically Q and I. Okay. 
The game of polo originated in Persia, but quickly became a favorite pastime of Tang Dynasty aristocrats. This realistic model captures the movement and speed of the game. The horse strains to stretch his legs out as far as possible, his head to one side. To give the player maximum freedom to hit the ball. In turn, the player's body is taut, his knees gripping the horse as his head is raised in anticipation of hitting the ball. The intense yet impassive expression on his face produces an exquisite balance. Alright, so just from this picture, it, it would, what it made me think of was photography just made us so lazy. Versus back in the day, if you had to, if you wanted to capture a moment or a, or a movement or anything, a subject, it's like you had to literally make it. <laughs> and then we got photography. And basically, if you look at this picture, it's a picture of the statue of a rider on a horse. And it's like, now I'm looking at, it's like, now with a camera, you could get the same picture of the real thing, or you could watch a video of it too, but it wouldn't, you wouldn't have this, this, uh, this model then, right? It's just, it's just, it's just on, on your phone. So it's, it's very interesting how. I mean, because they made, they physically made all these things back in the day, we even have something to talk about right now. <laughs> okay. Versus, versus now, everything's digital, and it's just like, yeah, we're all turning into characters because we want to live in this digital world because everything we want or whatever is in the digital world. We express our minds, everything, digitally. That's why you see people going full fucking characters, digital characters. They don't give a fuck, man. <laughs> Anyways. As a result, the balance between height and length may have been created from a desire to attain harmony between the reality and spirit of the horse. See, this is what I'm saying, like, Back back then, you had to like put all these idea, all this shit we just talked about, harmony, reality, spirit. You had to put it all into the fucking sculpture, man. Nevertheless, it is still true that the aim of horse breeders all over the world is to obtain this perfect complement of measurements. That's where you got eugenics. <laughs> okay. The Tang Dynasty was, however, a period of artistic realism, and there can be no doubt that craftsmen of the time were highly attentive to the details of the animals they modeled. What could possibly be said is that the horses we see modeled in clay and bronze statues were not copied from the general kind of horse available, but rather from the highly bred descendants of the horses from Fergana and Persia. These were owned by the emperor, the court, the noble classes, eunuchs and concubines as a mark of their social standing. This can be confirmed by the exquisite trappings which adorn them. So, 
having these nicer horses was a way of showing where you stood in the hierarchy just like nowadays if you just let's say uh trade the, <coughs> excuse me trade the horse for a car it's the same thing you want to see how many horses i have in my garage <laughs> this one costs 1.2 million Okay, um, Fei Ma, the flying horse, which has been adopted as a motif by the Chinese tourist department. This example, made of bronze and dating from Eastern Han Dynasty, was found in Lei Tai, Wu in 1969. The grace and movement of the horse is captured in the delicate turn of the head and the lightness of the hoofs. I don't know how they did all this shit, man, but we definitely lost, <laughs> like, a lot of skill because of going digital, but anyways. Peacetime was to focus attention on the horse in new ways. The horse was to become a symbol of wealth and distinction employed in hunts and games of polo, which were the new occupations of the wealthy classes. Riding schools were also established to train horses in the patient discipline of dressage. By 667, an imperial edict had reserved the riding of horses for the ruling classes only. Yep. Horses were imported in large numbers from the Middle East and Transoxiana to be used for cross-breeding with the horses in the imperial stables. The magnificent horses bred from horses from Fergana and Kokand were very highly valued. Kokand, where is that? These latter were named Celestial and, and of them all, the white ones were the most sought after. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus was a white horse? What? Horses of this breed were frequently used as subjects for paintings by famous artists. The artist Han Gan gained a reputation by painting the horses of Emperor Xuan Sung and his favorite concubine Yang Yuhan, in particular the one called Zhao Bai, Night Shining Whiteness. <laughs> In the, belief, in the belief that Polo was excellent training for his troops, Emperor Suang San Sung encouraged its practice by means of an imperial decree issued in 747. The game was already popular amongst the ruling classes after Emperor Tai Sung had seen a display by Polo teams who came from Tufan or modern day terms I'm assuming that's Turpan. Archaeological excavations have revealed polo fields within the grounds of palaces and summer retreats. Okay, where was I? Summer retreats. Polo was played Polo was played in teams of twenty players on horseback. It is still a popular game in Mongolia, the country from which it was imported during the Tang Dynasty. Originally, the game is known to have come from Central Central Asia or Persia. 
equestrian arts reached their peak under the reign of Emperor Xuan Sang, who was an enthusiastic supporter of dressage. His dancing horses were to become a legend over the following centuries. In the official history of the Tang, begun, begun in 941, there are references to the foreign dancing horses in the emperor's dressage schools. Two rows of elegant horses would dance to the sound of an orchestra directed by two women. The most spectacular moment would come when the tune Qiang Bei Qiu was played, a song of the upturned cup. One of the most beautiful pieces to have been discovered in recent years is a silver and gold traveler's flask dating from the Tang Dynasty. Chinese archaeologists call the horse, which is depicted in relief on the surface of a flask, a dancing horse, as it is certainly a representation of one of the famous horses from the dresses school. The horse is seated with a glass in its mouth. The ears are pinned back, which seems to indicate a pause in the music, in the music, or that the horse is waiting for a musical signal. Surely, this elegant, graceful horse is the symbol of the golden age of peace, which was brought in by the dazzling Tang era. Horses were also used to entertain state guests. A passage from the Jinglong Wenquanji, Annals of the Pavilion of Jinglong Era Literature, give us a description of a banquet given in honor of a Tibetan embassy. During the dinner, trained horses were exhibited. They started to dance in a row to the first chords of the music. At each refrain, the musicians allowed them to drink. Then taking the wine glasses between their teeth, they sat down and then got up again to delight, to the delight of the Tibetans. Huh, interesting. It kind of uh, gave me some... Um, parallels to, let's say, when the horses were used to entertain the guests... It made me think of Samson when he was brought out in front of the Philistines to entertain them. Also, um, also, um, Okay, um, when under the pretext of the excessive nepotism practiced by the emperor's favorite concubine, Yang Yuhan, General An Lusha headed a military uprising which ended in the emperor fleeing the capital and the dramatic death of the concubine, the dancing horses were split up. Some of them were used for troops stationed on the border, a mistaken ploy for as the Shans played they started to dance in the middle of the charge <laughs> that is funny as shit man don't ever take your dancing horses for war <laughs> they're gonna start dancing in the middle of the charge 
Okay, one of the most beautiful pieces to have been discovered in recent years is a silver and gold traveler's flask days dating from the Tang Dynasty. Chinese did I read all this? Chang okay, Chinese archaeologists call the horse which is depicted in relief on the surface of the flask a dancing horse as it is certainly a representation of one of the famous horses from the dressage school. The horse is seated with a glass in its mouth. The ears are pinned back, which seems to indicate a pause in the music, or that the horse is waiting for a musical signal. Didn't I read all this? Surely this elegant, grateful, this elegant, graceful horse is a symbol of the golden age of peace, which was brought in by the dazzling tongue. Okay. And then there's a bunch of just, okay, that's, hmm. This whole thing has a lot of stuff on horses. I'm going to keep reading. I didn't know this was all here. Okay, there's another one, Chinese Horses by Lewis. Okay, well, I'm, I might, hmm, or should I keep going? Cause there's another one, another one, another one. It's crazy. This fucking thing has so many things on fucking horses. The fuck? The horse and engine training medical practices. What? Okay, I'm gonna do another one. Peace.